morning, and I invite you to take, whoa, there we are. Take your Bibles, please, and turn in them to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 1. We're going to be there in just a moment. This is the Memorial Day weekend, as I know all of you are aware, and many of our folks are away, but we're glad to see all of you here today as we gather in the name of our Lord Jesus. But on the occasion, it's also appropriate, I think, that we remember what Memorial Day is about. God, in His grace, has given us a a nation in which we are, by constitution, assured religious liberty. And in that privilege, we gather today without fear of, uh, of any interference or of someone coming, hauling us off to jail. Uh, there are places in this world where that is very, really, a risk. And so we're thankful to God for this land that we have. And for those of you who have served in the military in order to assure the continuance of our freedoms as far as human responsibilities involved. So if you're here this morning and have served in the military, we want to thank you for your service. And we pray God's richest blessings upon your life as we all share together in the legacy that you have been a part of assuring. Well, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 1 this morning. We're going to be beginning in verse 13 of chapter 1 and continuing through verse 13 of chapter 2. You'll find the outline of the message in the bulletin, so I would encourage you to follow along there and uh, take a note or two, especially if you're in growth groups. Some of those notes might be useful to you as your groups meet throughout the week. Earlier this month, my wife Kathy was away on a trip to see her mother and other family members in South Carolina, which meant that I was on my own recognizance in the management of our household. Concern for the protection and the well-being of things in the household, in her absence, she left me numerous instructions, we might even call them directives, for the care of the domestic front while she was gone. For example, don't forget to water the dahlias. Uh, Don't forget the dahlias by the corner of the garage, too. Uh, Don't forget to water my plants on the deck. If you get hungry, there's a pizza in the freezer. (laughs) Thaw it out first, and then bake it according to the instructions inside the wrapper. Don't forget to water my plants in the house. And don't overdo it. The African violet, don't pour water on the leaves. Instead, pour the water in the pan below. The water will wick up and nourish the plant. Put the dirty dishes in the dishwasher. When the dishwasher is full of dirty dishes, run it. This is how it works. When the dirty dishes are clean, take them out and put them away so you can put more dirty dishes in. Did I mention her plants? (laughs) Well, those are directions, aren't they? It's not that we don't ever have those kinds of conversations while she's here. It's just that when she's here, she's in a position to assure that they are followed and rescue things if somehow the directions are not properly followed. But she was going to be gone for a while. And so she had a particular concern that she would not return to find things in total chaos and disarray. We didn't do too bad. In a small way, what I have just described is similar to the situation that we find in our text today from the pen of the Apostle Paul. As we learned last week, this is the last book that Paul wrote that we have in the New Testament. 
He was in prison as he wrote these words. And he knew, as he stated in chapter 4 of this book, that his death was near. When you're facing death, there are certain things that matter to you. Many things that once you thought were important aren't quite so significant anymore, but there are certain things that do matter. So it would not be a surprise that with respect to those things, you gather people around you who are very important, and you give them a few instructions, even directives, if you please, to assure a legacy that will follow after you're gone. That's precisely what we find here in these words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. He's talking about what we might call legacy, but not so much a personal legacy as a gospel legacy. The consuming passion of his life had been the furtherance of the gospel, the establishing and the strengthening of the church. Indeed, as he had left Timothy at the church at Ephesus, his first epistle, which we've studied in uh, weeks past, and now this epistle, epistle are intended to strengthen him in that ministry to that church and beyond that church through the ages. And so this morning we look at the directives that he gave in the verses before us. They're not the only directives in the epistle. He continues in this uh, mood beyond the verses we're looking at, but we've got a plate full this morning. So we'll take a look at what we find in chapter 1, verse 13, through chapter 2, verse 13, looking for God's directives for faithful Christian life and service. The first of those directives we find in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1, and I've summarized them with this expression, safeguard the word. Now look at those verses with me. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me, in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. The Oxford English Dictionary of 2016 identified the word of the year as post-truth. Now, we've for some time heard the statement that postmodernism is the reigning worldview of our time, and I think there is much to support that understanding of things. Some have taken it even further and said that we live in a post everything world, that there are all kinds of changes and, and uh, very significant ones that are taking place in our culture. If you observe the political discourse of our day and you see the division between the two parties and some of the positions being taken politically, I think you find evidence of this claim that we live in a world that is post-everything. So maybe we're not surprised to hear the expression post-truth. But if it's the word of the year, it's probably not one that we should ignore, but we should understand what it means. A post-truth culture is one that elevates feelings and preferences over facts and truth. And to make matters worse, it regularly confuses the two. It elevates feelings and preferences over facts and truth, and in the process confuses the meaning of the two. Maybe you've heard the expression, as I have, 
of create your own reality. Or this is my truth. That's your truth. I saw an interview uh, on a, a, a news station not long ago in which there was a panel. And one of the panelists was talking about Republican truth and Democrat truth. Also on the panel was uh, Professor uh, Dershowitz, a retired professor from Harvard Law School. And he said, I don't care about Republican truth or Democrat truth. I want the truth. Amen, Professor Dershowitz. There's a difference. Republican truth is really a matter, and Democrat truth as well, really is often a matter of preference or feeling, not fact and, uh, and truth. In this post-truth world in which we live, Paul's directive in these 13 verses is extremely timely because he's calling us not to uphold our preferences. He's calling us to uphold the truth. The truth of the Word of God, the prophetic Word made more sure, we're told by Peter. The words of Jesus, the words of the apostles, all of that which comprise the Scriptures we hold in our hands and hold dear. The personification of that truth in the Lord Jesus Himself. Paul puts it in the words of, of two exhortations, actually. Retaining the standard, he says in verse 13, of sound words. Obviously, by using the expression sound words, he's talking about things we say, things that are written. And so the truth that he has in mind is a written or a spoken word of truth. In verse 14, he says, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure that has been entrusted to you. As he speaks of that, uh, that treasure, we probably can think of, a, of an image that comes to mind of how one goes about guarding or keeping safe or keeping from loss or ruin something that is of extreme and paramount value. That's why it's called a treasure, or your translation may call it a deposit. Now, when I think of that, I think of having something that might be worth something. Maybe it's some, some valuable jewelry that you received as an inheritance from your grandmother. Or maybe it's a, 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 a document like a deed to a piece of property or something of that sort that is very important and is proof of your ownership of an asset. Maybe it's all the money that you have under the mattress, but you decided maybe a safer place would be to take it to the bank and put it in a safe deposit box. Now, what are you doing when you put those assets into that box? You're safeguarding them. You're protecting them from loss. And that's the idea that Paul has here for Timothy. Keep it safe from loss. But what's interesting about safeguarding the truth or guarding that which has been entrusted to us, as Paul's talking about it, is that we don't accomplish that by hiding it away in a safe deposit box somewhere. The counterintuitive notion that this kind of safeguarding has is that we safeguard it by getting it out there. We safeguard the truth and the gospel when we publish Bibles and when we distribute Bibles. I think of the ministry of the Gideons. I love the Gideons, don't you? Because every dime that the Gideons collect when they come and, and uh, present their, their ministry and stand at the back door with an open Bible, every dime goes to the publication and distribution of Bibles. They don't pay staff. The, the people who do the work serve at their own expense. 
That money goes into the distribution, the, the publication and distribution of Bibles. That's safeguarding the truth of God's Word. It's getting it out there. The truth is safeguarded when we study the Bible to interpret it correctly so that we have the, the, uh, the uh, preparation to stand against the false truth that so concerned Paul in the writing of, of both of these epistles to Timothy and Peter in his epistles and Paul when he wrote to Colossians, the various books that we have in the Bible that acknowledge and rebut the work of false teachers. We safeguard the truth of God when we keep it central in our ministry our lives as believers, and our ministry as a church. When we stand, as we are even now in a worship service, hearing the Word of God proclaimed, this is, if it's done faithfully, an act of safeguarding the truth. Not hiding it away, but putting it on full display so that it is accessible to our lives and transforming in its process. That's the work of the gospel, isn't it? To bring God's truth the people's lives that they might be transformed both for eternity but also for time by its power and its truth. So the first directive that we find in those two verses is to safeguard the truth. The second that we find is in verses 15 to 18 of that first chapter, and that directive is to stand faithfully with fellow servants. We read beginning at verse 15, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. There are two kinds of example that are described here in terms of fellow servants or friends or, or folks, we might say. The first are two examples of faithlessness. Phagellus and Hermogenes, not names we're very familiar with, are they? How many of you would name your child one of those names? Probably not. This is all we know about these two. They're mentioned here. Apparently, Timothy knew them, would have had at least known who they were if he didn't know them personally. But they are representatives of a group of folks, apparently, who had abandoned Paul and in some measure defected from the ministry. Now, it's striking when you think that Paul made reference here to the uh, fact that all in Asia, because Asia had been one of the, the prominent fields of his ministry, Asia Minor. Uh, Acts chapter 19 speaks of his travels and how he went from town to town, preaching the gospel, planting churches, seeing people come to Christ. The church was flourishing in those places under his missionary work. But that was then and this was now. Paul was no longer free to travel about. He was chained in prison. He was no longer the vital young man who could handle the rigors of that kind of travel and some of the beatings and other things that he took in the process, the hardships that he suffered, as he will refer to in chapter 2. Now he's approaching the end of his life. And sadly, that which had been a great awakening under his ministry, he now describes as a great defection of folks who ought to have been loyal to the cause of Christ and, and perhaps at least sympathetic to him, have, in his words, 
uh, turned away from me. But there was a refreshing contrast here. In one man, he singled out as a faithful example. Not the only one, to be sure, but the one who he mentioned and described this man, Anesiphorus. You can read and make sense, I'm sure, of the things that are said of Anesiphorus here. But Paul said that they refreshed him. They, they encouraged him. They strengthened him at a time when others had been ashamed of his status, his chains, and had turned from him. You know, when you think of folks in the ministry at various stages of life, you're reminded of the fact that the demands of the ministry are such that we need the kinds of friends that an Esiphorus uh, would be. And I want to challenge us as a congregation to keep that in mind as we, as we stand together as this church in this community, and as we labor together, we need to be encouragements to one another. Uh, we need to, uh, to realize that as folks go through some of the challenges and, and the, the tests and the trials of life and ministry, as they may face some of the, the opposition that can arise at various quarters, maybe on the job or maybe in the, in the uh, neighborhood or wherever it may be, that we stand together to be encouragers of one another, not those who turn away when another brother or sister is in need. Standing faithfully with fellow servants is one of the things that mattered to Paul. It mattered to him personally, but it also mattered to him as a principle of Christian life and ministry. We might even use the word community to describe what that is like. The third directive we find in chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The third directive that you see in that outline just pretty much takes those very words, doesn't it? Stand firm in the grace of Christ Jesus. Our confidence and our ability to live the Christian life and serve in it successfully as followers of Christ comes when we are strong in the grace that only He can provide. This isn't a do-it-on-your-own-white-knuckle venture. Standing firm is dependent upon the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that grace is essentially the foundation of our salvation. For by grace you are saved, Paul says in that verse. Grace is undeserved favor. It's favor that we have not earned, thus, thus it's called undeserved, but it's something that we desperately need because we are incapable of providing what grace does of ourselves. If you can do it, you don't need grace. Think about it in raising your children. I won't ask anybody to stand up, but I'm confident that I wouldn't have any takers when I ask this question. How many of you are perfect parents? Yeah, the laughter says it all, doesn't it? None of us would be so bold as to make such a claim. How many of you in the parenting stage of your life ever did or currently have those moments where you are completely flummoxed? 
You don't know what to do. Okay, we've already got some folks that are putting up hands. You don't have to do that. Uh, but, but that's the reality that we all face sooner or later, isn't it? Because that little cherub takes after his or her grandpa, <laughs> right? Or they're, yeah, you can blame it on somebody, or even you can just hold them accountable on their own because they're fully capable in their own right for the, the mischief that they can create and want to get into. And those are those moments when you say, if I'm going to get through this, I need help from God. I need His grace. I don't deserve it, but I sure need it. And you know, the beauty of it is that that is what He delights to bring to our lives. He's a God of grace, graciously disposed toward His children, His sons and daughters, so that He saves us from the consequences and all of the, the, uh, the disaster and ruin of sin. But then He puts us in a course of life where He continues to shower the blessings of grace upon us at every point of our need. We need the grace of Christ to stand firm in the currents of trial and test and adversity that are bound to come our way. David Hamilton said it well in a song that was made popular by Larnell Harris. The song is entitled, Were It Not for Grace? Here are some of the words. Time measured out my days. Life carried me along. In my soul I yearned to follow God, but knew I'd never be so strong. I looked hard at this world to learn how heaven could be gained just to end where I began. For human effort is all in vain. Were it not for grace, I can tell you where I'd be. Wandering down some pointless road to nowhere with my salvation left to me. I know how that would go, the battles I would face, forever running but losing the race, were it not for grace. My friends, that is the, the, the glory of God in His gracious disposition, granting us the answers when we are without them and leading us in the paths of fruit. And in that grace of our Lord Jesus, we can stand firm. So this morning, my brothers and sisters, I urge you, find your place in grace and put your roots there. The fourth directive we find in verse 2, entrust the truth of God to others. Verse 2 reads, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Each generation is handed a legacy. And each generation before God is responsible to manage and steward that legacy. 
We all stand on the shoulders of someone else. Paul describes this in a sequence that takes us actually back to chapter 1 a bit, and it kind of follows this this, uh, description, even using repeatedly the word entrust. Entrust is a word of stewardship, isn't it? You receive something from another, and you're tasked with keeping it safe and, and, uh, and shepherding it until it's time to hand it to someone else. Now, if we go back to verse 13 of chapter 1, we see that Paul says, retain the standard of sound words which you heard from me. Now, there's a first step in this sequence. Paul had received the gospel message. He got it from Christ. And he's writing that gospel message here and throughout his New Testament epistles with with apostolic authority. He's speaking on God's behalf under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so when he speaks that truth under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it has the authority of God behind it. And those things that he has said to Timothy in both of these epistles specifically are directed as sound words that Timothy is to receive and hold fast to. That's the first step in the sequence. So Paul, having received this gospel message from Christ, according to verse 14, says to Timothy, through the Holy Spirit. That's an important observation here. We didn't deal with it a few moments ago, but notice it now. This protective work of the Scripture is dependent upon the Holy Spirit. In all of those ways that I suggested, we safeguard the Word entrusted by preaching it and teaching it, studying it, interpreting it. All of that is Spirit-empowered if it's going to be right, good, and true. But he says, you now, this treasure has been entrusted to you, Timothy, And then when we come to verse 2, he says, the third step in the sequence, the things which you have heard from me, same wording used back in verse 14, but now Paul is telling Timothy, those things that I've entrusted to you, that you've heard from me, you entrust, you entrust these to faithful men. So Paul had received the gospel truth from Christ. Paul had placed that truth in Timothy's hands for safekeeping. He says to Timothy, now you entrust it to others. Who will be able to teach others also? There's the fourth step in the sequence. Who will be able to teach others also? Who will be able to teach others also? Who will be able to teach others also? Do you see a progression and a preservation of a legacy? It's identifying faithful people. He uses the the male language here. I take it that he does so specifically because he's talking about the stewardship of, of the word in the leadership. We might think of it in terms of the pastor or the elders, those folks in ministerial leadership. But there's a principle here that applies to us all. And that is the fact that we are all blessed and entrusted with the truth of God's word to be the guide for our lives and the regulator of our service within the body. Each of us has a role. And we're all called to be faithful in receiving that responsibility and entrusting it to others. And that becomes so essential even as we are a growing church. Because as a church grows, 
the needs in ministry grow. But as a church grows, more people are showing up. And the task of fulfilling this directive is to identify those who are gifted and who are faithful to assume some of those responsibilities. And then we can think of it as well generationally, how it is that we're not all here forever. With the passing of time, so comes the passing of generations. And so part of the fulfillment of this is entrusting across generational lines those who will assume the mantle of leadership and ministry in their time and opportunity. I've been thinking about that with respect to this church. This church was planted in 1962. 62 is the date in which the church was identified as autonomous and began to meet. It wasn't the actual uh, formal, well, it was the formal beginning, but, but informally there had been a lot of groundwork broken and laid probably for two to three years beforehand. There were folks, visionary believers from the Charter Oak Church, who knew this community and knew that there were children out here and people who needed the gospel. And so they began to reach into this community, ultimately then by 1962, establishing this church. Names like Alton Mac McDaniel come to mind, and others. He wasn't the only one, but he's one who is often mentioned in that company of the pioneers that invested themselves in a gospel ministry in Yakult. Many of you knew Mac McDaniel and others of that generation. Many of you were here, either at that time or shortly after the inception of this church. For many of you, this is the church you have known for the vast majority of your life. Some of you were raised in this church from childhood. Your parents may have been a part of that early and first generation. Your grandparents. You have been witness to and no doubt party to this process of entrusting the legacy of truth. Because maybe you were one who was raised in this church as a child. You came to that vacation Bible school all those many years. And maybe it was in that vacation Bible school and in the nurture of this community of saints that you came to faith in Jesus Christ. And the day came when you were ready to assume the mantle. And some of that opportunity of service was passed on to you. And you've received it. Some, some continue to, to, to serve in various capacities. Sometimes those capacities change over time. Maybe you uh, were very active with the Iwana group when you were in your 30s. But in your 80s, it's a little tougher to do all the games, right? And yet I am amazed as I learn of how some of you, even in those senior citizens' years, are working with the Iwana kids 
are coming out on Tuesday night for the youth meetings and investing yourselves in that youth group. You're, able, you're readily able to be distinguished from the, the, the kids by the color of your hair. But you know, that's the, the, the work of receiving a trust and then always being alert to those who, who are about us that need to be drawn into the mission and entrusted with the legacy and the stewardship of it as well. And that's the directive that Paul gives in that second verse, that principle of, of entrusting a treasure, that which is surpassing value, because remember that ultimately this church is not our church. This church belongs to the Lord Jesus. And this church is precious enough to him that he gave his own blood to redeem us. It matters to him. And so we are called to faithful stewardship in entrusted and being entrusted with it. Well, hurrying along, the fifth directive we find uh, summed up in verses 3 through 7 in three word pictures. I need to be quick with these. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Suffer hardship, the first image he gives is that of the soldier. The fact that he gives the command to suffer hardship makes perfect sense when you think of a soldier, particularly in wartime. We're coming upon the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion, just in a, in a week or so now. 75 years, and some of the news uh, stations have been featuring interviews with some of the remaining few who were part of that invasion in their, young, in their younger days. We see the film clips or the portrayal in John Wayne movies of what war is like. And, and we've all no doubt seen those film clips of, of soldiers disembarking from the English Channel and onto those beaches. And we see many of them left as the casualties of war, not, not even living past that, uh, that edge of the water. You've seen the clips of the paratroopers dropping in and getting tangled up in trees and, and other things that were some of the, the difficulties and challenges and hardships of that kind of an invasion against a well-fortified enemy. Reminded of the hardship, and yes, even the price of giving their very lives that many of those soldiers paid. And Paul says, your Christian life and your Christian ministry are in many respects like the life of a soldier. You endure hardship. You don't get entangled with the affairs of the world that would draw you, your attention away from your primary focus of your military service. Now, in the Christian sense, that doesn't mean we withdraw from the responsibilities of life that's God, that God has given us. Part of our battle, if you will, involves the responsibilities of our jobs and the care and support and raising of our families and those kinds of things. But it does remind us that 
that there are many entanglements in our lives that are really secondary and could very readily be removed with no harm. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul writing in Philippians when he said, this one thing I do. When he said, this one thing I do, by implication he said, these many things I don't do. Because the focus causes other things to, of necessity, fall away. The competitors for his time, many of them really of little consequence, could be dis, uh, jettisoned without any loss. One of the difficult realities of this life is that the good is often the enemy of the best. And being able to distinguish them requires spirit-filled wisdom. Second picture he gives here is that of the athlete. The athlete has to compete by the rules. There are certainly those rules that pertain to training regimens and and preparing for an athletic event. Uh, The regimens will differ according to the sport or the event. A shot putter has to do a different kind of training regimen than a sprinter has to do. But there are also the rules of the contest itself that must be respected, and a violation of those rules will result in the loss of reward for the event. This principle can be illustrated very well from this year's running of the Kentucky Derby. Many of you may be aware of that. At our household, it's a a regular observance, a little throwback to a prior life. One reporter put it this way, in a nearly unprecedented move, the winner of the 2019 Kentucky Derby, Maximum Security, ridden by jockey Luis Saez, was disqualified, and the victory awarded to the second-place finisher, Country House, and jockey Flavian Pratt. It was a surreal turn of events for the muddy 105th run for the roses. That maximum security was the clear winner wasn't in dispute. He was the fastest horse on the track, and he clearly crossed the finish line well ahead of the rest of the field of 19 horses but he was disqualified from winning the race. The reason? Some behavior in the midst of the race, actually coming out of the final turn, in a moment when the horse veered out of his lane and interfered with the runs of a pair of competitors who were closing fast behind him. Jockey says said after the race that he never put anybody in danger, Maximum security, said Saez, simply shied away from the noise of the crowd and may have ducked out a little. Some, however, suggested that Saez deliberately steered the horse to block those closing in on him. Maybe it's hard to tell because it was a rainy, muddy race that day. But whatever was behind the infraction, the infraction was there. There was no doubt in the minds of the officials that maximum security left his path, interfered with the run of the two competitors, and as a result, officially finished 17th in a field of 19 horses, though he crossed the line first. Nearly unprecedented, only one other time in history has the horse that crossed the finish line first been disqualified. Now, Paul takes that image and applies it to the Christian life when he says to us that we must run the race lawfully. 
God has a moral order and a spiritual order of things, and it's not ours to decide. We don't live in the world of my truth. We live in the world of God's truth. We live in the world of the truth as it's been revealed by God. Though we are not saved by the law, the law stands as God's uh, guide and uh, the, uh, the call to obedience to God in our lives requires that we understand the standards of his, mor- of his moral righteousness revealed in his law. And when God says this and not that, our response is to obey. The third image, the farmer, is cited for hard work. And some of you know that very well because we have farmers in our midst. We may uh, be thankful that we live in a day where there's a lot of mechanization that has eased some of the backbreak of farming. Uh, you, you see some of the pictures and, and accounts of, of how it used to be. You see that farmer with a, uh, a horse or maybe uh, a team dragging a single bottom plow through a field, and he's got to contain the horse, manage the plow, and walk. That is hard work. And there are any number of other things that generations uh, of years past had to do that have been made easier by mechanization. But I'm sure any farmer will tell you that it's still hard work to farm. It's very demanding of your time, your expertise, your patience, and your perseverance. And so it's a well-taken example of the fact that if we're going to follow the directives of the Lord in the image of the farmer, we've got to be prepared to work. It's not a bed of roses that we're called to. The final directive is found in verses 8 to 13. And it says, in summary fashion, simply, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. There's a lot packed into those eight verses. And to simply state, remember Jesus Christ, is to to leave a lot unsaid. But even that simple directive says a lot. Remember Jesus Christ. His resurrection, God's stamp of approval upon his redeeming work on the cross. And so when we remember the resurrection of Christ, we are remembering his work accomplished in our place in his death on the cross that we might pass from death unto life. And when we remember him as the descendant of David, we realize that that is his credential as a physical descendant of the king, the covenant king of Israel, and places him in the messianic line and is the credential of his rule as king. And so when we remember Jesus, we remember him as our Savior, our Lord, and our coming king, according to that eighth verse. And Paul says that that 
reminder of the reality of who Jesus is provides all the incentive that he needs to faithfully serve even when it cost him such things as his reputation, being imprisoned as a criminal, the suffering of hardship that he's already given as directive, and he attests as his own experience. The fact that Jesus is central to his life is the pattern that should be replicated in ours as well as we make Jesus central in ours. We're called to remember him. Now we talk about Jesus a lot around here, and well we should, because in the speaking of him, we are remembering him. When we monthly have a, an observance of the Lord's Supper, we are remembering the Lord Jesus and the centrality of his work on our behalf. It's a message that sometimes people think, oh, that's so familiar, get over it. No, don't get over it. There is never a day that we should grow tired of the truth of the salvation that is ours in Christ. And it bears repeating at every turn, remember Jesus Christ. I remember my dad when he was trying unsuccessfully in his later years to recall something in a conversation. He would say, my forgetter is working overtime. Anybody identify with that? Yeah, probably all of us would have to say our forgetters work, and sometimes overtime. Forgetfulness is a part of the reality of human frailty. But there's another kind of forgetfulness, and I think it's the kind of forgetfulness that Paul has in mind here. It's the forgetfulness of neglect. Old Testament Israel is a good example of the forgetfulness of of neglect. They were given as a redeemed people. They had been brought forth from bondage in Egypt, and God established with them covenant relationship at Mount Sinai. And he gave them the law. We find that in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy in our Old Testaments. And God was concerned that they never forget the work that he had done on their behalf, and the fact that they were his unique covenant people. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, he gave a charge to parents. A charge that they were to teach their children all of these truths of the law. When they were rising up, when they were lying down, when they were walking in the way. In other words, he was saying a comprehensive plan of parental training and nurture of children in the things of God. But the sad commentary on Israel's history was that a generation forgot to teach, and the next generation forgot the Lord. Sobering reminder, isn't it, that when we neglect to remember the Lord Jesus, He will vanish from our awareness and the realities and practices of our life to our own peril. These six directives that we have seen are the making of a legacy, a gospel legacy. And though Paul wrote them to a man who lived nearly 2,000 years ago, they're every bit as relevant today as they were then. And I trust that as we receive these, we find hope and encouragement in the pursuit of our own walk with Christ and our work together as the Yakult Community Church. 
These add up to a legacy of responsibility that's regularly tested in a fallen and godless world. Faithfulness to our Lord is going to cost us something. We're called to suffer in His name. It's an invariable law of Christian life and service. But it's also true, as we see in that 11th through 13th verse, that the cross is followed by a crown. And when we're faithful in our walk and our obedience with Christ, we can look forward to that word of commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. Brothers and sisters, this morning I want to encourage you, take heart, stick with the agenda, and look forward to that day when we will see our Lord and Savior face to face, to remember Him and never to be at peril of forgetting. Worship team, I'll invite you to come as we pray and then we'll close the service. Lord, we thank you for these words that are sobering words and words filled with hope at one and the same time. Lord, we pray that you'll find us faithful in pursuing your agenda and your directive, directives in this world that would uh, rise to oppose us at many turns. We thank you that we have freedoms that many in the world do not have, and yet we know that those freedoms could be taken from us at some point. We must never be uh, dependent upon constitutional guarantees to be faithful to you. And so, Lord, we pray for strength by your Holy Spirit in the pursuit of your gracious calling in our lives, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.